Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. We are going to get started again with variations on landings, and our next landing is going to be a soft field landing. So first of all, what is a soft field? What are examples of soft fields, or why would we use it? Gab? It can be anything other than a concrete runway. Examples here in the UK, there's plenty of grass strips. That's one surface. You can also have a mixed surface of concrete on one end of the runway and then grass on another end of the runway. You can also have a beach runway. An example of that is Barra in Scotland. It's on an island. And yeah, I think those are the only examples I have. Excellent. Who else? I believe Destiny Jade. Or like even slushy runways with the snow and a grass strip falling. Yeah. Yeah. Good addition. Who else? Omar. There's gravel runways also. Yes. Yep. Philip. Glaciers. A glacier. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. So we know why we need to do a soft field landing. Let's talk a little bit about techniques. What would a pilot do differently if it was a non-hard, good quality concrete surface? Destiny J. When you land, keep that controls back into your chest so that the, so that you don't come to a complete stop and you don't get stuck. That is one of the really important items. The wings will help uh, support some of the weight of the aircraft if the plane is still traveling at fairly fast speeds. There's still, even after the wheels touch the ground, there can be that wind still going over the wings, which means the wings are creating a little bit of lift, and that helps prevent the plane from sinking into the ground. Even after the plane is done with that landing rollout and decelerating, the pilot wants to be sure not to stop so they don't sink into the ground. They want to keep the controls back, which helps take some of the pressure off the nose wheel if it's a nose wheel plane, and then just keep on taxiing. That is a great one. Okay, so we have holding the controls back after landing. What is another technique for soft field? How about something with the power? And again, we're speaking about single engine, tricycle gear planes, unless we talk otherwise. Mo? You can keep a little of power until the touchdown. So it's going to be a little softer. It's a technique you can, you can use. Yes, you can use power to help lower the plane to the ground more softly. Now, this is pilot technique. Technically, it's okay if the pilot keeps the power in throughout the landing 
Or if they pull it out before the flare or in the flare, and then they add a little bit more right at the end. I believe both of those are perfectly acceptable by most government agencies and examiners. Gab. Make sure you pull back your yoke or stick when you're on uh, when you're on the ground because you might get your nose wheel sinking into the uh, into the surface and then you risk a prop strike or a uh, because it's bumpy might even risk uh, oleo failure. Yes, and we did speak about that with Destiny J keeping the controls back, but I forgot the one where there could be some kind of ugly hole or ditch in the ground, and maybe the nose wheel will get caught in that. And that can put a lot of wear and tear and damage on the nose wheel. Okay, as far as technique goes, that is basically the technique. Once a pilot is in the flare, it's very common to add just a little bit of power to help soften out the descent rate as the plane goes into the ground. And in most planes, it's probably going to be like one or 200 RPM at the most and just kind of lowering it on. This is not really a specific technique on the landing, but I want to remind everyone that if you are going to land on a soft field, you should probably get a really good pilot report ahead of time as to the condition of the field. If you are going to go off and fly at a grass runway somewhere, maybe you want to call the airport manager or the airport owner and just ask them, did it rain recently? How soft is it? All of those usual things. It's amazing how even just some rain can make a big difference. On a soft field landing, do you have to do anything different to your speed? Can you do a normal or a, a short field speed? I mean, for me, it kind of depends on the length of the soft field runway. Because I know plenty of runways here, that are, I mean, grass strips that are really short, like, I don't know, five, six hundred, three hundred meters I've landed on. If the surface is hard, I'd go for it, but I'd select a lower speed if it's that short. And because it's a low wing aircraft that I flew anyway, PA 28, I already had like a nice cushion of air underneath me so it didn't really matter that much but um if it's wet i would probably consider not going okay omar yeah captain uh pair uh sops like my old bicycles sops and the buh you land with the normal approach speed and i would also suggest if you're landing on a short grass field you make sure that in your performance section you check and read the notes because in the notes it will give you a lot of extra additions to your ground roll and your landing distance performance calculations if you're landing on grass fields. So landing on grass fields can increase your uh, landing distance quite a bit. So I would also suggest that you make sure if you're going to a grass runway, make sure that you have enough runway you can land and a little bit more than enough maybe a pure soft field landing just uses a normal approach speed for example if you were taking a test like a check ride and the examiner said show me a soft field landing the way the newer way that pilots do it is they just use a normal approach speed and then adding that power at the end but if the examiner says show me a soft field landing combined with a short field landing, then you have to combine all of the two techniques together. And it is acceptable 
to use that slower speed that's recommended for a short field landing as you come in on the soft field and then still add a little bit of power at the end so that you have that shorter flare because of the slower speed, but you're still softly lowering the plane down to the ground. You can use either a normal approach speed or a slightly slower approach speed. Either one is acceptable. Any other final comments before we move on? Also, if I'm wrong, just correct me. Uh, If it is carburetor heat, you can also close it right before the touchdown because uh, maybe you get some dirt inside the engine. Ooh, that's a great one. I hadn't even thought about bringing that up. Carburetor heat uses unfiltered air. And if you are landing on a runway full of dirt or grass that could get picked up into the engine, that is a great idea. Philip, go ahead. Yeah, sometimes those those soft field strips are not leveled, not that much leveled like concrete ones. So your side picture and any performance might be different. Great point. If someone owns a grass runway, they should do something called rolling the field. It means they take a big, heavy roller, almost like a construction worker would use when they're paving a road, and they drag it back and forth over the grass after it's rained when it's still nice and soft, and that helps smooth out the whole field. The problem with landing on a grass runway, if you're not familiar with the airport, is that there could be an animal that just digs a big hole in it, or maybe there's just some dirt washing away and creating large holes. So that can be difficult on planes. Typically, it's actually better to land on a grassy runway in a tail dragger airplane than on a plane with nose gear because the tailwheel airplanes have those big, sturdy main wheels in front. Whereas if you compare it to a Cessna with a weak little nose wheel, uh, you actually are risking more damage on those nose wheel airplanes. Not only that, but you will see a lot of tail dragger airplanes landing on soft fields because they like the way that the grass grips the tail in the back. A lot of them will say that it's actually easier. Okay, any final thoughts on soft field? Mo? Also, if we are doing an emergency landing, which we don't know the condition of the uh, field that, that we are landing, we also use the soft field technique. I love that. Mo, you have the best uh, reasons for doing it. Thank you again. So true. I mean, maybe you are landing on a soybean field or a cornfield. Hopefully, try the cornfields are really rough on the plains. Try to land on a, a field with lower crops. But yeah, I mean, tr- it, that might be a soft field that you were not expecting and you really don't know that condition. All right, we do need to move on. So we are going to speak about night landings. There are two common errors of a night landing. The first one is that pilots tend to approach too low, and the second one is that they tend to flare too high. Let's talk about why they approach too low. It's actually due to visual illusions. The visual illusion has two names, but it really means the same thing. Some people call it the featureless terrain illusion, and other people call it the black hole illusion. 
What it means is that it's difficult to get good depth perception often at night, especially if there aren't a lot of lights between the pilot and the runway. If they just see the lights on the runway, but there are no lights on the ground, it's very difficult for the pilot to get proper depth perception. Typically, they will see the bright lights on the runway and believe that they are closer than they really are, which makes them fly lower. So it's very common at night for a pilot to fly too low. What can a pilot do to help prevent themselves from flying too low? Gab? Make full use of the puppies if they're available. Yes, that is probably the most popular common answer is to use some type of visual guidance. The PAPIs, P-A-P-I-S, or P-A-P-I, PAPIs, that you mentioned, for those who don't know, are lights that guide the pilots in. Any type of guidance like that, or an instrument approach, or something like that, is really good. Also, just being very aware of altitudes can help as well. That's why pilots often approach too low. Why would a pilot often flare too high. Why is that such a common mistake? It has something to do with the runway lights. I believe I saw Gab go first. Yeah, so the runway lights have a slight, you know, they're mounted on something, so they have a little bit of height. Generally, the advice I've heard for a smaller aircraft is to flare when they're around the height of your shoulder. Oh, wow. I agree that it's because of the height on the runway lights. Now, I don't know about the shoulder thing. That might be a trick with the peripheral vision. Yeah, and Philip, I believe you had a comment. It's also depending on the runway light brightness, because if it's too bright, that can also harm your ability to assume your height. But also if the runway has or has not a centerline lighting system, because that helps really a lot for the flare. Oh, 100%. Actually, I agree very strongly with both of the things that you said. Uh, Having an actual centerline lighting system is great because the lights are actually in the pavement, so it does help better. A lot of pilots say, well, we get free lighting, so we're going to turn them up as bright as possible. For me, I might initially turn them up bright if I'm trying to find where the runway is at night. But once I see where the runway is and I'm coming in on a nice approach, I like to dim the lights as low as possible so that I will get less of that visual illusion. So that is my personal technique. And remember that if you're coming in at night, if it's at an airport without a control tower and the pilot is controlling the lights through microphone clicks, remember that a lot of them are on around a 10-minute timer. It's a really good technique to also just uh, refresh the clicks on the microphone so that the lights don't turn off right as you are flaring. Other thoughts on night landings? Philip? Yeah, one addition, it's also the brightness of your digital map thing or or EFBs, whatever you have on board, uh, because that also can harm your vision towards the outside. And recommendation would be to use night coloring. And dimming, of course. Dimming interior lights is definitely recommended. And let your eyes adjust to the dark so that you can see. Destiny J. 
And also use your peripheral vision. Don't try to stare at a light. Okay, so that using peripheral vision is important for navigation and for looking for aircraft and crews. If you're in a flare, you should have enough lighting where you might have to look directly. That's my opinion. Omar. Captain, I would suggest something, for, especially for our uh, Cessna single-engine pipers and stuff like that. I would suggest you guys have a headlamp with a red light just in case. You know, these dashboard lights are not very reliable. And uh, when lo- workload increases, of course, at night, workload increases. And uh, yeah, I would like always like have a backup. That is a great idea. It's always a good idea to have some kind of backup at night in case the lights on the plane fail, which leads to a a strong recommendation for practice. When you are practicing or learning night landings, as soon as you master a regular one, as a flight instructor, I strongly recommend that you deliberately practice with your landing light turned off in the plane as well so that if it ever fails or burns out when you're flying, you'll still be comfortable landing. I've had, I think, two landing light failures in the 20 or so years that I've been flying. And it was, neither time it was a big deal. I was very calm and comfortable because I'd practiced it beforehand. I do have one trick. I treat it like a soft field landing. And that's actually why I teach night landings after soft field landings. So, Let's say that you really have trouble seeing where the ground is at night. What I say is just add a little bit of power as the plane is already pitched up at the end of that flare. Just squeeze in a little bit of power to help lower the plane to the ground more slowly. You can have the nose at a fairly high pitch and just squeeze in a little bit of power and just let the power lower the back wheels of the plane down onto the runway. So I will treat a night landing like a soft field landing if I can't see where the runway is. It's a really nice little trick. I do not fly seaplanes, but I've been told that when a seaplane is doing something called a glassy water landing, where the water doesn't have any wind blowing on it, they do the same technique so that it can help them judge their height. All right, so feel for the ground with power if you need. Practice with the landing light off. And then the last little piece of advice I will give actually came from that other instructor, Don, that I used to work with as well. He used to tell his students that if you see flickering runway lights when you're doing an approach at night, he said you should immediately go around. And once it saved one of his students' lives. But why would that be? What's, what's the problem with flickering lights? Let's see, Mo, I believe I saw you first. Yeah, it could be some animal passing the wrong way. Yes, it could be animals crossing the lights. I've seen that. And there's one other thought that I had as well. Dana. I was thinking it might be a tree. Yes, that is actually what saved uh, one of this instructor's students' lives. They were coming in to land at night at a, a small airport somewhere They saw the lights flickering and they said, oh, my instructor told me that I should go around if I ever see that at night. So they went around and climbed out and eventually landed someplace else. And when they looked at the landing gear on the plane, they noticed that the tops of some tree branches were stuck in the landing gear. If they had not gone around then, they probably would have flown into the trees. 
So you never know. That might help somebody in the future. I hope it does. Since we talked about night landings, I want to just talk about how to cheat in general. And by cheating, I mean using a little bit of a trick that you shouldn't always use, but it might help you if you really need it. You know how I mentioned doing a soft field landing essentially at night? When I, This is what I used to do. When I was a new flight instructor, I still wasn't the greatest at landing an airplane. I still struggled a bit, but I really wanted to impress all my clients and impress, especially when I was doing discovery flights or taking my family flying with me, I really wanted to make it look like I did a soft landing. So if I wasn't positive it was going to be a soft landing, I would just add a little bit of power in at the end, like a soft field landing, and then it would make my touchdown softer just because the power helped lower the plane to the ground. Yes, my landings would be longer, but just by landing with a little bit of power, I was able to control it better. Does anyone try that or does anyone do that? Johnny? That's not cheating. That's that's normal. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it kind of depends on the plane. I mean, it because it could become a crutch. There are definitely times when that's not appropriate, and but I, I it does depend on the plane. Oh, all right, all right, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the danger is that I would teach that technique to some people, and then they would never learn how to land without the power, and that would be a, their own crutch as well. But Tricks are nice. We all like tricks. Tricks are good. All right. I think that takes care of that. Let's talk really briefly about just a few other types of uh, landings, and we are coming to the end of this conversation. But okay, sloping runways. Let's say that there's a runway with a steep hill, or at least a medium hill. Is it better to land uphill or downhill? Enrique. Uphill. Yes, because that helps you slow down. It gives you a shorter time or length of runway needed. And so would you take off uphill or downhill? The opposite. Downhill now. Yes. So you see the problem here. You cannot have a plane taking off and landing at the same time. Yeah, just a quick story. Uh, One of the airports that are used for training here around my area it's a really, really, really uh, steep runway. So pretty much uh, they uh, they disregard the, the, the winds. So for landings, they only use the, the uphill side and for takeoffs, they only use the, the downhill side. And it's quite tricky because when you come from, from other airports to train over there, you need to get used to, to that situation. But it's a good training. I, I mean, you can learn a lot. Within that situation. Wow, that it is very different to land on a sloped runway. It is a good experience for pilots. Okay, I've got one other sort of fun question. We know that we are supposed to land uphill, and we also know that we should land with a headwind. So, what do you do if the wind is going essentially in the wrong direction? What do you do? If landing uphill would give you a tailwind, I would go around. <laughs> no, you really need to land. Uh, Gab. With my experience in the UK, the general advice was that you should just still land if the unless the the tailwind is particularly strong. 
Yes, that is the standard wisdom. Now, it does depend on how strong the wind is and that type of thing. But the standard wisdom is that it's better to land uphill with a tailwind than downhill with a headwind. Now we all know. (laughs) Okay, I just have a few other things to say about approaches. This isn't really a type of landing, but I want to promote it anyway. It's called a power-off accuracy approach, or some people call them power-off 180-degree landings. Does anyone want to explain what those are or why you might practice those? Gab? I've heard these called the impossible turn, but they are they're not practiced in the UK to the best of my knowledge. Oh, okay. The impossible turn is different. Um, the impossible turn is done after takeoff when there's an engine fail and it can be very dangerous in a lot of types of situations for the pilot to try to turn back to the runway. So that is a different one. This one I'm talking about when the pilot is a, is a, a beam their touchdown point on downwind, they usually bring the power all the way to idle and glide in. Yeah, Mo, go ahead. Yeah, you have. I think you have two reasons. One is um, like uh, know what to do if you have an engine failure inside the pattern, and the second is a getting a good judgment of uh, what you have to do if you have an engine failure and how you can make the runway. Yes. So it can give you a really nice short approach. And the main reason to practice it is in case you have an engine failure. With a short approach, if there is an air traffic control tower, it is traditional to ask them for permission to do an unusually short approach. I don't know how it is everywhere, but where I used to train, we would just say something like, Tower, Cessna 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, request short approach. And then they'd say, sure. And then we would go and we would pull the power when we were a BMR touchdown point and glide in, practice gliding in. What you want to avoid saying is we are simulating an engine failure because what if they don't hear the first part of your statement and they only hear the second part of your statement? You see how you could cause some unnecessary alarm in the system. So I do not say that I'm simulating emergencies on the radio. I don't even like the word emergency or talking about it because it can just give a lot of false alarms. So that's a power-off approach or power-off 180, a power-off accuracy approach. And I teach those, this is just me as a flight instructor standing on my soapbox, I teach those to even pre-solo students. And I find that it takes them longer to learn how to flare than it does to do a normal approach. They usually learn landings in the order that they fly them, essentially. So they learn the takeoff and the climb out pretty well, and then they master the downwind. And then pretty soon they master the base and the final, but they're still practicing that flare and trying to master the last part of the landing. So why not practice other types of approaches while they're mastering the last part of the landing? And I find that it actually helps relieve the stress and build the confidence of a student because everyone is thinking about engine failures in the back of their mind anyway. And the other reason that this is important, and then I'll call on a few other people, is because when a pilot does have an engine failure out in cruise flight somewhere, 
and they are practicing landing on maybe a farmer's field. It's customary for the pilot to circle over the field, which is nearby, and then put themselves into basically a downwind position at pattern altitude so that they can do one final 180-degree turn and land into the wind on that field. It's often called a key position. So teaching someone on a regular runway how to do a 180-degree turn from downwind helps them if there's actually a real engine failure. Let's go to Raphael. Welcome, Raphael. Great to see you. Hey, uh, Captain Teresa. Great to see you, too. I just wanted to point out, you had just mentioned before that you actually teach power off 180s to a uh, pre-solo. I, I did that as well, and I do that as well, just for the simple fact that they need to also know that if they do have an engine failure on um, downwind or during a first solo or second solo, that they, the best option would be the runway. So I just wanted to point that out that and comment that I agree on doing that with pre-solo students as well. Excellent. Thank you. And Raphael is an experienced instructor. I really appreciate that. Speaking of instructors, Omar, I saw your microphone flash. Yeah, Captain. I was just want to also to clarify because I was taught pre-solo by my instructor, the Power of 180. But also he taught me it differently. He So in commercial ACS standards, we have the Power of 180 accuracy approach which you specify a, a point and like a short field, you have a plus or minus 100 or 200 feet, sorry, to hit your target. I would also suggest that for pre-solo students, don't teach them, like teach them to make the runway whatever it takes, whatever point. Don't, don't make it as hard as it's specifying a point or something like that. Just make them feel comfortable that, hey, we're on downwind, we will make the runway. That is a good point. And it's very, it's a good technique, a recommendation in this power off accuracy approach to move your aiming point and touchdown point down the runway anyway. So for a pilot that might aim at the numbers on the runway, they might change their aiming point to be more like the thousand foot markers, the 1000 foot, you know, 1000 feet down the runway, because that way, if they're short, they will still land on the runway. It's, it's not time for showing off. It's just time to be safe. Anyone else have comments? I actually did one literally yesterday uh, during a circle to land because we couldn't be bothered to go around the noise abatement area. So we turned in before it. And uh, yeah, we, we did that. Great point. Thank you. I believe that wraps up power off accuracy approaches. And this is actually going to wrap up our, our conversation on landings as well. But the last few things I will say, and then I, I'll take other tips for people about just generally practicing landings. Remember that nothing replaces practice. And of course, this is not real flight instruction here. You've got to go with a real flight instructor, get real training. If you've had your hands on the controls a lot, maybe you just need, and you're struggling, maybe you just need to see what a good one looks like again uh, to get that sight picture back. So that might be one reason to ask for a flight instructor to fly with you. Who else has tips on improving landings just to wrap up our whole conversation? I'm not too sure if this was discussed earlier in the conversation, but I suggest if there's anybody that has issues with landing, go to an airport that has a longer runway so that way you could kind of see the sight picture on um, on the flare. 
I know when I was a student, my instructor took me to a runway that an airport that had a runway longer than 10,000 feet. And what we would do is just go over the runway and flare the entire time, pretty much almost like a low approach. But we would stay approximately like around 50 feet above the touchdown and then we'll go around. And of course, we, 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 we would request that with the air traffic control and request, hey, we want to do a low approach and then go back around just to see a side pitch on how the flare should look. Ooh, that is a good one. I can see how it would get someone comfortable with flying low to the ground. And obviously, that should be done with an experienced flight instructor on board. Other comments or, or uh, tips? Gab? I would second what Raphael said uh, with the long runways. But generally, uh, you just got to keep going at it and not give up. It took me about 30 to 40 hours PIC to to really stop doing slam and goes. Ah, yeah. And landings are a common place for a student pilot to plateau. That means it feels like they are just never improving or getting better. And that's where it's a common point of frustration. A lot of times, the best way to break that plateau or that frustration, aside from practice, the best way is to get a different flight instructor because that is often where the pilot needs it to be explained multiple ways by multiple people with multiple approaches. And that can be one of the best ways to break that plateau. Captain Unmesh. A pilot can have about like 5,000 hours or 10,000 hours of flight time. But you actually see how much time do they spend on a landing? It's uh, barely any. The most critical part is the landing, which is mandatory. I mean, takeoffs are still optional. So it's very important that way. Yes. So, and I think I'm kind of smiling as you say that because I can tell you how many jet pilots have terrible landings. <laughs> and it's, they might have thousands of hours, but that is a perishable skill if it's not practiced a lot. Any other suggestions for improving landings just in general? I mean, l- last time I checked that on, my, on my flight log, I have over 400 landings. And if I go out right now and get a, an aircraft, I probably would slam into the ground. It also depends on the flight hours uh, uh, ratio towards the landings, too, because there are some people who have 6,000 hours and have like only 1,000 landings. It really depends also. And that's also the, the debate always what is experience. Yeah. And, you know, when I was instructing, I would have pilots come to me who hadn't flown in 10 years. And what was interesting is usually if they were a good enough pilot to begin with, often their first landing would actually be beautiful because it was almost like getting on a bike again with the muscle memory. But right when they would get ready to start celebrating, normally like the second and third landings would be terrible. So it was kind of weird that there would be some memory still there of a good landing. But then it was almost like they would lose it again. I I don't know all of the reasons behind it. I have one more tip, and that is to watch other pilots land. Stand on the ground and watch other pilots land or maybe even score the landings. Uh, If you want to play a joke on them, you can hold up big scoreboards that say like 10 or 9. And if you don't like the pilot, you can give them like a 4, you know, and grade their landing. So that's kind of a joke that some pilots will do when there are like fly-ins at airports or parties. They'll play that joke on their friends. So you can watch other pilots. You can now, in today's age of technology, 
You might be able to put a camera in your plane and video and film yourself. Uh, Raphael. You took the words out of my mouth, Captain Teresa. That was going to be one of my... Have a camera with you just so that you could find out the errors that you're doing. And the second suggestion is also is do enough solos. I know for me, when I was even right now as a CFI, I try my best to do solos so that way I could practice my landings on my own as well. That is a great point. Yes, I should have let you say that. As Right as I was speaking it, I saw your microphone flashing. and I was wondering if that's what you were going to say. Okay, I think that's going to wrap up our conversation on landings and techniques. Nothing beats practice. I wish you all happy landings. Thank you for joining. Does anyone have any other comments or questions or anything else to add? It can be about this or about any other flight instructing subject. For those even in the audience uh, panel, it's, it's always advisable if you're traveling as a passenger, never judge a pilot with his landings because at that moment, at that heat, at that time, with the weight of the aircraft and the wind, everything can uh, depend on the way he's landing an airplane. Uh, it's not always going to be soft, but definitely sure it's not going to break your back. That is true. There have been really strong winds in Michigan lately. I've landed in some really, really strong winds. The other day, I was gusting to 37 knots. And I was pretty proud that, and I was fighting the plane the whole way down. And we landed a little bit hard. And I just looked at my first officer and I said, well, you know, it was an arrival. It might not have been much of a landing, but it was an arrival. (laughs) So... But honestly, if if the passengers knew what we were dealing with up front, they would have been impressed. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the club pilot flight training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.